Bibles now, if you would, and let's open them to Matthew chapter 4. And today we come to part number 2 of the message that I began last week about a problem that confronts all of us as Christians. Does it make any difference whether you're a brand new, born-again believer or whether you're an old-time, seasoned Christian and you've been saved for many, many years, you're going to face this every single day of your life. And the problem is temptation. This is the desire of Satan to ruin your Christian testimony and just make your life ineffective for God. And so in short, this is Satan's attempt to defeat you. And you really shouldn't be puzzled about this or wonder about it because if Satan was so brazen that he would tempt the very Son of God, then you can be sure he's not going to leave you alone. Every day of your life, you'll have temptations. The beginning of the fourth chapter of Matthew is the story of Satan's attempt in the earliest part of Christ's ministry to defeat the Lord's purpose of him being the Savior of the world. If Satan could get Jesus to commit just one sin, one sin that we might even think to be a very innocuous sin, if he could commit, if he would commit just one sin, then he could not be the Savior of any sinner, not even a single sinner, much less could he die for the sins of the world. We may wonder, why did the Scriptures record this? And is this really important for us to study? And do we need to know about it? And I would say it's most definitely important for us because we need to learn to be wary of the devil. We need to learn how to defeat him in the very same way that Jesus defeated him. Uh, Jesus didn't have any special supernatural powers that he used to defeat uh, uh, Satan in these temptations, but he used the very same power that's available to every Christian in this room today. And that is hope. That's encouragement for us that we don't have to live our Christian lives in defeat. Now today I want to go back to the very same verses that we read last week. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4, and we'll begin with verse number 1. If you'd stand with me today... And these are the temptations of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward ahungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into a holy city, and setteth him upon a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. There you notice that the devil certainly knows Scripture. He knows how to quote it. Verse 7, Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we realize we have a a difficult task ahead of us. 
We have the devil's temptation every single day of our life. Lord, help us to learn something in this lesson today that we'll be able to defeat him, that we will live victorious Christian lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, I want to just mention very briefly what we discussed in last week's message. Point number one of the sermon last week was Jesus' adversity in the temptation. There are two perspectives to consider this as we think about the temptation. The first is what God put on him, and the second is what Satan put on him. And God's purpose in the temptation was very much different than Satan's desire in this temptation. Now, the Scriptures very clearly tell us in the first part of the chapter that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And there we see that God sent him there for a time of testing. And what God was doing, he wasn't trying to prove that Jesus, uh, prove that, uh, or see if Jesus could sin, but he was proving to us that he would not sin. Even under the worst of adversity, the very worst that could be thrown against him, Jesus would not sin. Of course, Jesus was the virgin-born Son of God. He was born into the world without a sin nature. There was no way for him to sin. But rather than God just telling us that he couldn't sin, God gave a demonstration of it. He allowed him to be tempted. And that gives us full assurance that though he was tempted uh, above the ways that Adam was tempted, yet Jesus would not sin. And so thereby we have confidence in him. We know that he's never going to fail us. When you put your faith and your confidence in Christ, it's always well-placed. And that's because man will fail. All men fail, but not the sinless Son of God. Now, Satan had a different view of this. Uh, Satan didn't lead him into the wilderness, but you can be sure that he was not going to miss this opportunity to, to tempt Christ and defeat him when he's in his worst physically weakened condition. Never before did Satan have an opportunity like this. And he tried to use this to his best advantage. Now his purpose today, his purpose then, his purpose is as it's always been. And that's to defeat God. If Jesus, again, had committed one sin, then Satan would have the victory. As I mentioned last week in the sermon, no one can really fathom what would happen if Jesus sinned. Not even the devil knows what would happen if Jesus sinned. Some of you may have heard about this uh, atomic accelerator that they're building in Europe. And what they're going to do, they're going to uh, smash two atoms together at speeds that have never, ever been before imagined. As you know, there are many scientists who believe that this earth, this world, the universe, entire universe got started from a very tiny, compacted, dense particle of matter. And all of a sudden that exploded and out came the universe that we have today. And so they they tell us that these scientists that are building that accelerator in Europe, that when they finally get it fired up and they get it to work, they just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they're afraid maybe we'll go into a black hole or something. The whole universe will change because nobody smashed atoms like this together before. Well, the scriptures tell us that all things that are in the world consist by the power of Jesus Christ. He's the creator. He's the one who holds everything together. Now, that uh, scripture in Colossians that tells about that, it could actually be literally interpreted that Jesus is the glue that holds everything natural and supernatural in the universe together. 
Now, thank the Lord for this, that Satan could not tempt Jesus enough to get him to sin. Jesus would not sin. He was not successful. So, this is Jesus' adversity in the temptation. God's purpose is to, is to uh, show us that he could not sin. Satan had a different purpose. God's testing his humanity, and Satan is trying to tear down his deity. Now, next then, we came to Satan's strategy in the temptation. Satan hit Jesus in a rapid succession with three angles of approach. Satan has a variety of devices. In the book of Ephesians, it tells us there that that these are the wiles of the devil, the different ways that Satan will come at us. And when one way of temptation doesn't work, then the devil just backs up, he reloads, and he comes at us again. There are many devices that the devil has, but they all boil down pretty much to three different areas of temptation. These are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, Satan began with the lust of the flesh, and that was his attempt to get Jesus to sin against God's providence. When you sin against God's providence, that's when you step over into God's territory. And that's when you think that you are able to supply your needs better than God is able to supply your needs. Now, it wasn't God's will for Jesus to make bread out of stones because God wanted him to experience everything that we experience. It wouldn't do us very much good to look back on the example of Jesus and to see that when things got tough for him, when things got hard to handle, he just used some supernatural power to get out of his temptations. Jesus didn't do that. You and I can't do it. And we're to trust God every single day that God always has our best welfare at heart. He's not going to let us go without supplying our needs. David said, I have been young and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. God always supplies our needs. Now where we run into trouble is when we think that our wants are actually our needs. And when you want something bad enough, that's when many Christians will step out of the will of God in order to get what they want. People will do that with their jobs. They'll do it with their finances. Many times people will even do that. Christians will do that in their church. Instead of serving where God puts you, you decide that's not good enough for you, so you want to be someplace else. And so it's just like uh, the old cow that's standing in a, in a field of green, green grass. He sticks his head through the fence trying to get to the grass on the other side. And when he finds out, he gets his head stuck, and he can't have grass on either side. And that's what happens when you as a Christian decide that your physical needs are more than your spiritual needs. And so you need to take care of things physically rather than looking at God to supply what you need. Jesus wouldn't do that. He knew God's will, and he was not going to sin against what the Heavenly Father designed for his life. So he was not supernaturally going to make stones into bread. He knew God would supply his need at the right time. And so, Jesus said to Satan, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So that first temptation didn't work. Well, then what did Satan do? Well, he just reaches down in that bag of tricks of his, and he pulls out another temptation. And this time, the attempt is to sin with presumption. Sinning against God's providence, that didn't work. And so Satan begins to attack with the sin of presumption. 
Now that corresponds to uh, John's description of the lust of the eyes. Notice here in verse number 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and sitteth him upon the pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands he shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now Satan said, If you truly are the Son of God then you can attempt to do anything that you want to do. You can jump off the highest place of the temple, and while you're going down, God will swoop down, he'll pick you up, and he'll save you and keep you from harm. You know, we don't know exactly what uh, Satan is referring to when he says the pinnacle of the temple. The temple didn't have a spire like a church steeple or anything like that. And so many people believe that what he's actually talking about here is the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount. That's the area that held up the temple. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see that part of the wall that's standing there. And you don't want to step off the edge of it. Because if you do, there's a 500-foot drop down into the Kidron Valley that's below. And throughout history, there have been people that have been thrown off that side of the wall. And they didn't survive the fall. So what Satan is saying to Jesus, he says, if you'll, if you'll just do this, then people will recognize that you're God. You just jump off the temple, survive that fall, and everyone will stand back and they'll ooh and they'll all and they'll realize what a magnificent feat this is and they'll know that you're God. You know, that's a mistake that many people make in religion. They think that their faith is built upon miracles. If you have enough faith then God will do the extraordinary. In fact, God is obligated to do a miracle for you. All you have to do, you have to claim that miracle. Just go get it. God's obligated. You know what that is? That's testing God. You know, there's only one place in Scripture where we're ever permitted to test God. Some of you need to try it out. It's in the area of giving. God said, test me, try me, prove me, and see if I'll not pour out a blessing. Now, you can write that one down and look it up. That's in Malachi 3, verse number 10. There is no other place in the Scripture where you are permitted to test God. But that's not what you hear on television. I mean, the televangelist comes on and he says, Claim your miracle. If you want to be healed, claim that miracle. God can't refuse you because God promised. If you want to be rich, you can claim that. God wants you to be rich. Now, these scriptures that we're reading here tell us, though, that you have no right to make any demands upon God. People that believe in these kinds of things become very quickly disillusioned when they don't get their miracle. And you know what the pastor always says to them, what the preacher always says? Well, you just didn't have enough faith. That's why you didn't get your miracle. But I'll tell you, you'll never have enough faith to test God in this way. Jesus would not even test God in a way that that, that was not pleasing to him. Jesus is not going to test God. The devil's not going to trick him into doing this. And whenever you, you test God by miracles, that's not proof that you have great faith. It's lack of faith that you demonstrate. Because then, then you're going to walk by sight and not by faith. And so Satan's trick in this instance is to make Jesus give a demonstration, make a visible sign, a huge miracle. That'll make it much easier for people to follow him and to receive him as the true Messiah. But did miracles, did great signs and wonders, did did that ever work for Jesus? Later on in this study of the book of Matthew, we'll find that it didn't. 
Even when Jesus raised people from the dead, when he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, that didn't cement people to his teachings. If they could not receive him by faith simply for the words that he spoke, neither would they receive him on the basis of miracles. This is really what the essence of faith is all about. Trusting God is not to demand proof from God. It's to believe that the proof will be forthcoming. You can't see it. You don't realize it. But God says it will happen. That's what real faith is all about. You see, when you test God, you doubt God. And so if you try to do things that are outside of the will of God just to prove his grace, because you think that you've done something that you shouldn't do, and so grace will cover up your sins and God will just overlook those things, that's to presume upon God's grace. That's sin. And Jesus would never test God in a way that he knew that God wouldn't approve. God had another way. God has another way that he wants people to come to Jesus. Now, miracles certainly did attest to the fact that, that he was the Son of God. But miracles were never given for the purpose of granting faith. Recently, I heard one of uh, America's most prominent preachers say something that just really blew my mind. I'm not going to mention his name, but he gave the invocation at the new president's inauguration, and he wrote this little book that's called The Purpose Driven Life. When he was questioned about faith in Jesus, he said this on national television to Alan Combs of Hannity and Combs. He said, give Jesus a 60-day trial and see if he won't change your life. Is that what the gospel is? I mean, is that what faith is? You try Jesus for 60 days? Now, what's that all about? That's Satan saying, throw yourself off the temple mount and see if God won't lift you up. You no wonder our, our country's in such a mess today. That's the preaching that we get from the pulpits. It says, test God. And it's no different from Satan standing right here in the pulpit and preaching to you today. Faith in God is to believe him for the very work's sake. And saving faith is not putting God on trial. Saving faith is Christ taking the penalty of our sins. It's taking the, the, the punishment of hell upon himself. And if you come in, don't come into this with repentance and faith, uh, uh, believing in Jesus Christ and faith in his blood to save you from your sins, you'll never be saved. You can't test God in that way. You can't presume upon God's grace. You can't test God as if it may or may not be all that, he may not be all that the word of God says that he is. Doubt is not faith. How do people get confused about that? I mean, God help us when America's most prominent preacher cannot give a clear, unequivocal answer concerning saving faith. And the part of it that's really so sad is that the unwittingly duped like Sean Hannity could look at that preacher in the eye and say to him, you are a great American. A great American is Jonathan Edwards. A great American is Isaac Backus, who was a Baptist preacher and a delegate to the First Continental Congress. And if you were to ask him about Jesus and about saving faith, he's not going to give you this modern evangelical line that God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life. He would repeat the very words of the Apostle John who said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So the devil has many tricks. He has his wiles. He has varying ways of deceit. 
And one of them is to get behind a pulpit in a church and tell people it is okay to test God. It's okay to presume upon God's grace because God will overlook your sin. You don't need to repent. You don't need to change. You can be a Christian just the way that you are. And that is the devil's lie. And if you believe that, you'll perish. Jesus couldn't be tricked. He wasn't fooled. And so he said, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Well, the devil's not through. He couldn't get Jesus to bite on those first two temptations, not the uh, lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. That doesn't work. And so he comes back with another temptation. And this time, he tempted Jesus to sin with prosperity. That's the pride of life. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now let me get to the point very quickly in this temptation. This temptation is a shortcut to what God promised through the cross. Now some weeks ago we were studying the book of Philippians chapter 2, and we're talking there about the kenosis of Christ. That's the emptying of Christ. It's his humiliation. It's his condescension to come down to a place of man, to be the servant of men. And Jesus humbled himself, the Bible says, and went to the death of the cross. The promise of the Father is that through that humiliation, Jesus would be lifted to the highest place. And so the suffering and the death of the cross, those were necessary because without that humiliation, God was not going to exalt him. Without following God's plan, without doing exactly what God says to the very letter that God gave him, there's not going to be any exaltation after the cross. There's no crown after the cross. But now Satan comes along and he says, you don't have to go through all of that. It's not necessary for you to listen to God to be exalted. I can take care of this right now. Skip the cross. Skip the beatings. Skip the nails and skip that death. I'll give it all to you right now. If you want it, you just fall down and you worship me and then you'll be exalted. Now the Bible does say that Satan is the god of this world. Satan has temporarily usurped the authority of God in the world. And so he tells Jesus, you can have all of this. You can have all the worship you desire. You just fall down and you worship me. Now, you think that wasn't tempting? You think that's not a good angle for him? Uh, I mean, do you think that, that Jesus wouldn't think about it? Uh, skip the humility. Skip the agony of the cross. Take the shortcut. Avoid all of that. Was that tempting? Well, think about how the devil tempts you. Think about how that you've been tempted sometimes to cheat just a little bit to get here or there or get what you want without putting in all the work and all the time that's required to get it. Did a school student ever think that he couldn't cheat to get a little bit further ahead and get a good grade without having doing the study? Did a businessman ever think that things would work out just fine if all he did was change a few entries on the tax form, if all he did was just commit a few ethical violations, maybe a questionable practice or two, and then he'll make a little bit more money. Did a stockbroker, did Martha Stewart ever think that nobody would pay any attention if they obtained a little bit of advice illegally or information illegally and so they make a good stock trade? Just pick up your papers every single day and see how many times that you read in the paper about people who try these very things. They get their hands caught in the till. Now, if people would do that for the little bit of gain 
that they get an earth on earth and the little bit of money that they can, they can get from it, don't you think that it would be tempting for Jesus to say, I'll forsake it all, I'll give up the cross, I'll give up all of that and have it right now? Would he be tempted to take the shortcut? Well, what a mighty temptation that was, but Jesus withstood it because God's way is the only way. Now, if Jesus wouldn't do a measly thing like turning stones into bread, then why would we think that Jesus would commit a sin against the very first commandment that God gave? I mean, the very one from which all blessings flow to us, that we have access into the God, into the things of God's grace. The Scripture says, number one above all things, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Jesus quoted the Scripture right back to him. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written... Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But the pride of life gets in our way, doesn't it? Many seek their prosperity from taking a shortcut. And again, that's the problem with much of preaching today, that name and claim it stuff. It says, God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. You're being shortchanged. You're not getting God's best. All they need to do is look at Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested and proved. You know what's wrong with American Christians today? We don't like to be tested. We don't want to be proved. Now, it's all right, we think, test God. Let's try to prove him. But let's don't have God test us. I mean, the furthest thing from our mind is that suffering has anything at all to do with living a good Christian life, being the kind of person God wants you to be, staying the straight and narrow road, following Christ in that way. That's not us. And that's because we have the me-first attitude, the me-first theology, instead of a Christ-first attitude. So this is what Satan says to him. Do this and I'll exalt you. Adam was told, just eat of the tree, Adam, and then you'll be as God. But he ate of the tree and what happened? He became a Satan. What happened was that he became disobedient and under the condemnation of sin and death. You see, when you follow Satan, you get what Satan gets. He always promises more than he's able to fulfill. Someone wisely said, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And it'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Jesus took that bait. I said that too. He he wouldn't sin. He wouldn't fall for the devil's tricks. And so he said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan." That wasn't a suggestion. That was a command. And Satan didn't have any choice to do exactly what Jesus told him to do. Now that leads me then to the practical application of the temptation of Christ. What is it that we can learn from the way that Jesus handled the devil? Well, number three is our victory over temptation. Jesus' adversity and temptation, Satan's strategy in temptation. And now we come to this third part, our victory in temptation. When Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, Satan had to leave. You see, Jesus demonstrated a principle of the law of God. And that is that when we resist Satan, he has no choice but to leave us alone. Now, I say that's a law of God because the pride of Satan will not allow him to be resisted. There's nothing that he hates worse than a Christian who stands up to him in the power and the might of God and says, I will not enter into that temptation. So what do you do? How how can you have victory over Satan? Let me give you three suggestions very quickly. 
think I've said enough. I don't have to really labor these points today. First of all, don't underestimate the devil. There can't be anything clearer than what we read from this story, how foolish it is to think that the devil is not powerful, to think he's not cunning, to think that he doesn't have those devices. I mean, he is so brazen in his attempts, he tempts the very Son of God. Don't think that he's not powerful. The powerful, the devil is powerful enough that God led him, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil because the devil was the most powerful foe that Jesus Christ could come up against. He led him into the wilderness and made it a legitimate testing because Satan is so powerful. So here is Satan. He doesn't shrink back from standing toe-to-toe with the almighty creator of the universe. He has the power, it seems, to challenge his creator and make that a legitimate testing. Now, of course, Satan is a created being. He doesn't have enough power to overcome God. And so Satan didn't come at Jesus with a display of power. Now, we notice that he doesn't call his forces in. He doesn't call all the demons and all those in to help him to defeat Jesus and make a display of force. He's too smart for that. He knows he can't defeat, defeat him in that way. To bring his power and might against Jesus would be suicide. Devil side, maybe, if you prefer that. But Satan's too smart for it. So he comes at Jesus with subtlety and with cunning. He appeals to Jesus in a very reasonable way. You're hungry? What's well, only reasonable? Turn these stones into bread. You have the power to do it. God is your father. It's reasonable. Demand that he do something for you. God's way is difficult. My way is easy. God's way requires suffering before exaltation. I can give it all to you right now. There's no trouble. There's no problems. You can have everything now. You don't have to wait. That's a temptation. And when you're faced with those kinds of things, don't think that it's going to be easy to resist that. Don't underestimate him. He's been around a long time, 6,000 years to perfect all of his methods. So he knows the best. He knows the most effective way that he can get at you. He may not tempt you in the same way that he tempts me. Satan is so good that he tailor-makes his temptations, and it's just for you. Second thing is, don't overestimate your ability. You're not immune to the devil. I mean, this is the biggest problem that we have among Christians today, is that they think that they're spiritual enough that they can handle the devil. He, you don't have anything that he hasn't seen before. You can't, you can't, you can't defend yourself with something he hasn't seen Now, here's the thing about the devil, though. He's not afraid to attack you at any time. Any time. Here here we see that he attacks Jesus in the greatest moment. A great spiritual victory has just been won. Jesus was just baptized. The voice of God the Father was heard from heaven. Nobody's heard that before. The, The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. And that's when God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, you would think that the devil would shrink back from a display like that, but he didn't. Not Lucifer. No, no. In the greatest of Jesus' triumphs, he came at Jesus to try and knock him down. Now, here's another note for you. Beware of this. Great temptations often follow great triumphs. You can't let down your guard. Don't ever turn your back on Satan. Keep him in front of you so you know where he is all the time. But that's not all. Beware of this. Satan attacks when we are the weakest. So Satan's an equal opportunity offender. He doesn't care. Strong, weak, doesn't matter to him. 
The strongest Christian that there is, he'll come against. And the weakest Christian he'll come against. Let me tell you what Satan loves. He loves it when you get out of sorts with the pastor. He loves it when you start to pout a little bit and you say, oh, people really don't care about me. He loves it. He loves it when you're not praying like you should. He loves it when you leave your Bible laying on the coffee table for weeks at a time. Now, what the devil does, he takes a Christian at his weakest and he leads him deeper and deeper into sin. Don't overestimate your ability at any time to deal with the devil. You can't do it in your own strength. Jesus didn't attempt to do it in human strength. He called upon his Father. He called upon the power of God to deliver him. And that's the very same means by which he delivers us. So don't, don't underestimate the devil and don't overestimate your ability. But make sure that you do this. Do use the resources that God supplies. God has given you resources. Now, what is it then that God has provided for you to fight the devil? Well, number one is the word of God. That's your first defense against the devil. So each time that Satan came at Jesus, Jesus didn't entertain him, didn't entertain him. I mean, he didn't argue with him. He, he didn't try to plead with him to make things a little bit easy. He just, he just said, he came back with the word of God and he said, it is written. When Satan tempted him the second time, he said, it is written. He came back the third time, he said, it is written. Three times, three quotations from the word of God. Martin Luther in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, said this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. You know what that one little word is? It's the word of God. What did David say in the Psalms? He said, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against God. So if you want to defeat the devil, have a good working knowledge of God's word. When Satan comes to you, you quote the word of God back at him. Keep the words of God in your heart just like Jesus did Because wherever God's word is prominent, Satan can never have a part. He cannot stand against the word of God. The next resource that you have is the people of God. The people of God. If you want to stand in harm's way or or get out of harm's way, spend more time with the people of God. Get around in the fellowship. Make godly people your friends. Stay in church. Go to church. Stay in church. Be among the fellowship of God's people because that is a protection against all of Satan's intrusions. When do Christian people get in trouble? Think about it. How many Christians do you know? Can you think of some Christian today that fell out of church and are not going to church and and they're leading a holy, consecrated life for God? Can you name somebody like that? I can't name anybody. You already know the answer to it. I mean, a Christian who says, I, I don't need the church, is a Christian who either very quickly falls into sin or he's somebody who's already succumbed to the temptation of the devil. You can't say those words, I can do without God's church, and think that you can stand against the devil. He loves to get you in that position. Now, the simple truth of all of this is, you cannot improve upon God's methods. God doesn't provide you with other ways to fight off temptation. These are the ways that he has. 
He's the one that's going to lead you through these. When you're tested and you're tried, when the devil attempts to deal with you, there are resources that you can use. You stick with God's word and you stick with God's people. And I promise you, the victory will be yours. Now let me leave you with this thought today. Every sin that you commit is another nail in the hands of Jesus. You ever thought about it this way? Jesus died to pay for our sins. Every sin requires a corresponding amount of suffering. Whenever you're tempted, then you think about Jesus hanging on the cross. He bled, he died, he suffered for you. It was sin that nailed him there. We ought not to ever think about the death of Christ as being an impersonal thing. If he's your personal savior, then he suffered personally for you. And I think that that means that if you're the only person upon in, in the entire world, that Jesus would say that he would come to this world, that he would die on a cross for you, and he would suffer for every sin that you commit. And so when you think about it, when you think about entering into that temptation, think about Christ has to suffer for that sin. He had to suffer for that sin. Every sin brings a corresponding amount of suffering that has to be paid for. And so whenever you are tempted, whenever the devil comes there with his lures, with his wiles, with all of these tricks, think about Jesus hanging on the cross. That's your defense. Think about the cross, because there Jesus paid for sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that we have of Jesus Christ. He would not sin. He knew no sin. He stood strong against every attack of the devil. And he gives us the hope and the encouragement that every person here today, we can do the same thing through your might and your power. Help us as your people to resist Satan's attempts to get us to sin. May we stay in your word. May we stay with your people. Lord, protect us when Satan comes against us. I pray this morning for some lost sinner here today. They don't know this protection. They can't stop their sinning because it's inherent in the human nature. We cannot do this by ourselves. We must have a relationship with Jesus Christ where we trust him to take care of all of our sins and then depend upon his power. Speak to our hearts today through this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.